John 18, join me in your Bibles, John chapter 18, where we have left off last week, and we are going to be looking at verses 12 through 27, John 18, verses 12 through 27. Always a privilege to open God's word together as God's people. Always a privilege and joy to see the glory of Christ on the pages of Scripture. John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27, an important text where John moves the story of Jesus's final few hours before his crucifixion. It moves the story from the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where we left Jesus last week, verse 11, to now the residence hall of a man named Annas, the father-in-law of Israel's high priest. But in reality, Annas was the real power behind the Jewish Sanhedrin, the real leader of the Supreme Court of the land. What we find as verse 12 opens, there are six courtroom trials. There are six courtroom trials. We see the first of these six here. Six trials Jesus will face in these early Friday morning hours before his execution. In verses 12 through 23, Jesus will be questioned in secret by Annas. It's trial number one. See, in verse 24, Anna sends Jesus to Caiaphas, the official high priest, the only one who can bring a charge to Pilate. From there, Jesus will then stand, already unjustly convicted, but stand guilty before the entire Jewish Supreme Court to certify Caiaphas's verdict. After those first three trials, he will then be sent to Pilate's Pilate will send him to Herod. Herod will send him back to Pilate. And Pilate will finally condemn Jesus to death. You see that in chapter 19, verse 16, when Pilate hands him over to be crucified. Six trials, three religious, three civil. And in all of them, the same message resounds. The message is this. Jesus was an innocent man. That's the message. Jesus was an innocent man, so key to the gospel we rest in and the gospel we proclaim. We see Jesus' innocence from the chief priests after their three attempts, their three trials to find Jesus guilty of some sin, some crime. What is the charge they bring before Pilate? Look at verse 30, 1830. The charge they bring before Pilate is this, if this man were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him to you. That is to say this, we have no evidence. We have no evidence. You have to take our word for it. Take our word. It's a backhanded admission of innocence. Look at chapter 19, verse four, we see Jesus's innocence When he stands before Pilate, verse four, I find no guilt in him. Verse six, repeated, I find no guilt in him. Each admission of innocence is a fulfillment of Psalm 69, four. Psalm 69, four, those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. They're all around. 
This is exactly what Jesus promised in John 15, 25. They hated me without a cause. There's no sin, no crime. As John chronicles these last few hours, he makes it clear that Jesus is going to the cross as the sinless, guiltless, innocent savior. The unblemished lamb pictured in the Old Testament and announced by John the Baptist, behold, the lamb of God, he will take away the sins, not of himself, but of the world. Old Testament context, he's the suffering servant who would be pierced through for not his transgressions. There's no sin in him but our transgressions. He'll be crushed not for his iniquity, but for our iniquities. Why? Because he is the righteous one, the innocent one. And it is his mission to bear in himself the iniquities of all who would believe and be saved. He bears our iniquities. Why? So that he could, this is Isaiah 53, he could justify the many. He bears our sin so that he could pay for that sin and then credit us with his righteousness. In the words of Peter, Christ is going to the cross to bear, again, not his sin, but to bear our sins in his body. Hebrews 9, Christ is the sacrifice offered once to bear the sins of many. For Christ to accomplish this redemptive, justifying mission, he must be sinless. He must be innocent. He must be perfectly righteous. And that is John's message for this chapter and into the next chapter. He chronicles the trials of Jesus and he shows us the glory of Christ's perfection, the glory of Christ's innocence and righteousness. This is the very reason why, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, the very reason why God the Father could make him, his son could make him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The glory of justification. It's because of Christ's sinlessness that our sin could be credited to him so that, just let this sink in, so that, we, the sinner, might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin to Christ, his righteousness to us. He takes our guilt so that we can be given his perfection. It's the pinnacle of grace. It's the glory of the gospel. So that's the emphasis for the next chapter and a half. And yet, the way John records this first trial of Jesus as he stands before Annas, it has another emphasis. It's not only Jesus' innocence, but it is our guilt. It is our need for this sinless sacrifice because every time we see the faithfulness and the sinlessness and the perfection of Jesus, we also see the faithlessness and the sinfulness and the failure of Christ's people, specifically Peter, in this chapter. 
So John narrates the opening trial. It's like a split screen as a movie plays out. In one scene, we see Jesus standing steadfast and innocent. In the next scene, we see Peter crumbling under the pressure of temptation, denying the Lord he loves. Then moves back to Jesus. We see his righteous strength. It's then followed by Peter again in his sinful cowardice. All of it's by design. Each failure by Peter, a needed reminder for us of why Jesus had to go to the cross. Each failure by Peter, explaining why we cannot save ourselves. Because like Peter, we each fail in our commitment to Christ, don't we? We each fail. We each need a sinless savior who will take our guilt, pay for our sin, and credit to our account his righteousness. One commentator put it this way, in many ways, the story of this disciple crumbling under cross-examination when compared to the unwavering endurance of Jesus under the severest scrutiny serves only to magnify the loving resolve that Jesus that kept Jesus true to his mission. Here was a savior who was loyal to his flock. Now note this, not because they were faithful to him. Christ is loyal to us, not because we are faithful to him, but because of his unconditional love for them, for us. He would be faithful in life and he would prove faithful even unto death until he had finally obtained for them, for us, everything which he had promised. It's a drama of faithfulness, but also a story of failure. But it has an appendix of forgiveness as well. It plays out in four movements, four movements. And we'll begin with movement number one, the prisoner arrives. The prisoner arrives, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander of the, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. As we saw last week, this arrest could never have happened unless Jesus allowed it. Jesus was driven by his father's redemptive plan. That's why he tells Peter in verse 11, the cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of divine anger against sin which the Father has given me to drink. That's my mission. That's my purpose. The question is, shall I not drink it? That's what I need to accomplish. It's the only way of redemption to happen. It's for Jesus to be arrested. The only way for Christ's people to be forgiven is for Christ to stand trial. The only way to drink the cup of holy anger for Christ to be condemned to death. So Jesus willingly surrenders himself to these guards. Notice the word that is used, they bind him. And just like last week, there's Old Testament context here. They bind him. Jesus is bound like the Passover lamb was bound. So think of Psalm 118, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. For the lamb could be sacrificed, it had to be bound. 
Think of Genesis 22 when Abraham bound his son, his son of promise, Isaac, and laid him on the altar. Now here is Jesus, the substance of the Old Testament shadows. He is the final Passover lamb bound. He is the son of promise about to be laid upon the altar of a cross. Before that can happen, the soldiers, verse 13, led him back across the Kidron Valley, back into the walled city of Jerusalem, to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, that fateful year, that year of redemption. But not officially the high priest, Annas was the real power behind the court. In fact, verse 19, we see that title high priest ascribed to him. That was the case for many of the Jews. Why? Why was he the quote-unquote high priest? Why was he so powerful? Well, Numbers 35, a high priest appointment was supposed to be for life. But the Romans cared little about that. They appointed the high priest. The Romans were more concerned about one leader of an opposing people holding an office for too long, gaining too much power, too much influence. So they changed the high priests. Well, 15 years earlier, Annas was removed. His son-in-law was appointed to the post. But why bring Jesus before Annas? Why? Why bring him first here before bringing him to Caiaphas? Well, There's a few reasons. First of all, Annas had a personal vendetta against Jesus. Personal vendetta. Remember what Jesus did earlier in the week when he cleaned the temple courts? Pronounced judgment upon the greed and filth that had filled the temple? Well, that whole system of animal sales and currency exchange, that was Annas' baby. It was called the Bazaar of Annas. He benefited most from it. So this man is angry at Jesus. Who are you to come into my temple? Not once, but twice. I remember what you did three years ago. Who are you to call this into question? Second, Christ is brought before Annas first because the religious leaders need to figure out what charge they are going to bring before Pilate. Well, it's the only one who can put Jesus to death. So this is more like a deposition here. They're trying to trap Jesus and his words. He needs something to bring before Pilate. Third, Caiaphas needs time to gather the Sanhedrin court together. Remember, it's the middle of the night. This is an illegal act. This is illegal. They're sleeping. And so he needs this time And so they bring him to Annas first. They want Annas to see what charge they can gather around. So you put it all together. This is no fair trial. Evil will personify this night. Injustice will have its way. The verdict has already been determined. Remember back to John 11. The religious leaders just need to find evidence so that Jesus will die. 
That's why John includes verse 14, referring to Caiaphas's verdict. Back to John 11. Caiaphas's verdict. Remember who Caiaphas is? He's the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the nation. Jesus must die. But remember that passage. Because yes, evil will have its way with Jesus on this night. And yes, injustice will rule. And yes, Jesus will die. But remember John's interpretation of Caiaphas's words. That was Caiaphas's plan, his evil. But remember what John writes. John eleven fifty one. Now he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative. There's a greater purpose behind the evil. Jesus was going to die. That is true, but it's to accomplish God's redemptive plan. Jesus will die for the nation, on behalf of the nation, in the place of the nation. This is Isaiah 53 language. He dies for our sin and not for the nation only, not just for the believers in the nation. No, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's us. So Caiaphas plans evil, but God has planned through that evil his redemptive purposes. This is redemption, atonement. This is why Jesus gave himself to the soldiers. This is why Jesus offered his hands to be bound so I, Jesus, will not put up a fight on this night because atonement must be made. A substitutionary sacrifice must be offered, a redemptive plan that required an unjust trial. It's movement number one. Leads into movement number two. The apostle follows and falters. The apostle follows and falters. We move from the sinless prisoner to now the faltering apostle. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus. Why? Because Peter loved Jesus. Remember Peter's commitment. I will lay down my life for you. I love you. Between verses 11 and 12, every apostle fled for their lives except for Peter. And verse 15 says, another disciple, that's John who wrote this gospel. It's an important note. That's how Peter gained access into Annas and Caiaphas' inner courtyard. That's verse 15. Now that disciple, John, was known, not just an acquaintance, but a close friend, a relative to the high priest, to the high priest's family. And thus he and Peter were allowed to enter with Jesus into the court of the high priest. This is why he was able to speak to the doorkeeper. That's why the doorkeeper allows Peter in. Now we read that and it sounds good, doesn't it? Peter's there. He loves Jesus. But remember, Jesus' warning earlier that night, Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. 
There's loyalty here. And there's love. But there was also a proud, self-sufficient heart within Peter. He either forgot Jesus' earlier warning or he dismissed it altogether. Whatever the case, he enters this courtyard because he overestimated the strength of his resolve for Christ. And just as Proverbs 16 warns, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling and stumble, Peter does. While Jesus stood firm before his enemies, Peter begins to falter in his faith. Verse 17. Then the slave girl, a maid, someone in the servant class, a young girl who kept the door of the courtyard, someone who had no voice within the house of Caiaphas, no influence among the people. She said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? I think there's scorn here. Are you so foolish to be following this man who now stands trial before the high priest? Are you his follower? Mark's account includes these words. You too were with Jesus the Galilean. To which Peter responds with these fateful words, I am not. There's a contrast Look over at verse five. Verse five, when Jesus was asked if he was the criminal the Roman guards and Jewish leaders were seeking, Jesus' answer was bold. Ego eimi, I am. I am. But now here when Peter is asked by a nobody slave girl if he was a follower of Jesus, his answer is filled with fear and dread. His answer is not ego a me, it's uk a me, I am not. That's one short phrase that begins Peter's slide into sin. J.C. Ryle's words are appropriate. Let us beware, let us beware of making light of temptations because they seem little and insignificant. It's only a slave girl. It's only two words. There is nothing little that concerns our souls. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little spark may kindle a great fire. A little leak may sink a great ship. A little provocation may bring out from our hearts great corruption and end in bringing our souls into great trouble. Let's remind you here, no temptation is insignificant. No temptation is too small to bring down an unguarded saint. We're moving now and Peter's life on this night from the oath-making disciple, the oath-making disciple, I will lay down my life for you. The knife-wielding apostle who tries to take down 200 soldiers with a knife. 
to now a fearful and faltering follower who begins to distance himself from his savior and right here chooses self-preservation. Chooses self-preservation over faithful confession. Again, let us beware of making light of temptations because they seem little and insignificant. It will be a slide into sin that only picks up speed. But before John records that, remember now the other movement. He turns our attention back to the faithfulness of Jesus. It's movement number three. The Savior stands his ground. The Savior stands his ground. While Peter is denying his Lord before a slave girl, Christ is maintaining his perfection, his righteousness. This is the obedience we each need to be credited to our account. He's standing in our place. He's doing what Peter failed to do. He's remaining faithful to his father before the most powerful religious leader of the land. Verse 19, the high priest, and still speaking of Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And this is nothing less than sinful aggression. This is evil manipulation. Why? Because again, Annas is doing what is illegal. So it's illegal to hold a trial at night. But it's also illegal to try to force an accused to incriminate himself. It's against Jewish law. It's up to the accuser to present two or three witnesses to substantiate a charge, not the defendant. But Annas ignores the law. He asks about Jesus' disciples. Maybe Jesus will say something about his followers that could be manipulated later into some conspiracy theory to overthrow the Roman government. He asks about Jesus' teaching. Maybe Jesus will admit some anti-Rome rhetoric. Can use that, bring that to Pilate. Jesus will have none of this. He will not play Annas' game. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. The implication is this, not like what you're doing here, Annas. You're questioning me alone. You're questioning me at night in the dark. Unlike you, I have nothing to hide. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. In other words, I know what you're doing. I see through your games. I know you're trying to trap me in my words. But the burden of proof is on you, not me. If you are truly interested in a fair trial, which you're not, but if you were, then you could question the thousands who have heard my teaching. Just ask them. Now notice though, Jesus says nothing about his disciples. There are two questions. Tell me something about your disciples. Tell me something about teaching. Jesus focuses on his teaching, not his disciples. Why? Because Jesus is continuing to protect his men. We saw this last week. 
In verse nine, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. He's continuing to protect them. He draws all the attention to himself. Again, verse 20, I have spoken, not them. I always taught, I spoke nothing in secret. So you can leave my apostles out of this, leave them alone. He knows the weakness of their faith, but he will not lose them. Deal with me and only me. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the majestic calm and protective care of Christ for his people. So Jesus keeps the attention on himself and he asks in verse 21, why do you question me? Where are your witnesses? Certainly as high priest, you're supposed to know Deuteronomy 17 And on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. Annas, have you you forgotten the law? Continuing that verse, a man shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, even if I give you the evidence. You can't condemn me to death. Follow the law. Verse 21, and question those who have heard what I spoke to them And again, there are thousands, just find two or three. They know what I said. Well, a hard heart does not like its depravity to be exposed. And so continue verse 22. When Jesus said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, slapped him with an open hand, It's another illegal act. And he says, is that the way you answer the high priest? So you can now add abuse and humiliation to the mix here. It should not be surprising, John 7, 7. What did Jesus say? The world hates me because I what? I testify of its evil. So Jesus is done here. Expose the evil of this trial. Their only response is abuse. It's all they can do. And yet Jesus will not be bullied into a false confession to lessen the pain or bullied into a sinful word to come out of his mouth. Why? Because Jesus is fulfilling scripture. He's fulfilling Isaiah 50. I did not cover my face from humiliation. It's a servant song. He's fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He will not retaliate in sinful anger. Why? He's fulfilling Isaiah 53. He's continuing to cling in faith to his father's redemptive plan. First Peter 2 puts it this way. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. What would you do in this situation? I know what I would do, and it would not be righteous. But he will not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Here's the question, how? How does he do this? How does he remain righteous? Here's how, because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
His faith is in the Father and the Father's redemptive plan. Why? Why? Here's why. Because we needed Christ to bear our sins in his body on the cross. And so Jesus says, if I have spoken wrongly, verse 23, if I have sinned with my lips, if I have told you any lies, if I have spoken in an evil manner, if I have violated Exodus 22 and cursed a ruler, if I've done that, then testify, bring the evidence of the wrong. But if rightly, if I am innocent, why do you strike me? And with that, Annas is left speechless. He has nothing. And so verse 24, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. He sends Jesus to another part of the residence. He has found no charge against Jesus. He has substantiated no crime committed by Jesus. He's offered no evidence about Christ. It's a backhanded admission that Jesus is the innocent righteous one. Backhanded admission that Christ is indeed the perfect lamb about to be slaughtered. Moves into movement number four. Movement number four. The rock crumbles. The rock crumbles. From righteous strength to now fearful cowardice, from the Savior from sin to now the sinner who needs the Savior. Verse 25 Now Peter was standing and warming himself. So they, from one voice to now many voices, Matthew notes that another girl spoke up. Mark says the same girl pressed the issue. Luke says that a man begins to confront Peter. That's the they. It comes from all sides now. The pressure is mounting. They said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And once again, Peter denied it and said, I am not. Matthew adds Peter saying, I do not know the man. Mark adds Peter's word, I neither, words, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. Luke adds, woman, I do not know him. Peter has taken his stand and it's a stand against Christ. It's a denial that only deepens in verses 26 and 27. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. Well, Peter's going to deny Christ in front of a simple slave girl. Here's an eyewitness now of what Peter's done. Accusation of attempted murder. You're the one. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Question expects an affirmative answer. Yes, I did. You're the one. You're the one who pulled the knife. And at this point, Peter panics. 
Self-preservation takes over. Fear fills his heart. The temptation was just too much for him. Verse 27, Peter denied it again. Mark and Matthew adds, he began to curse and swear. That is to say this, Peter says, if I am lying, let God's curse fall upon me. It's not like he's using bad language. He's announcing God's curse upon him. Let God curse me if I'm lying. I do not know this man you are talking about. And just as Jesus promised, verse 27, immediately a rooster crowed, showing that even though sin reigns throughout this night, Christ is still in control. The rooster crows. Let me quote J.C. Ryle again. We should mark the amazing degree of weakness that may be found in a real Christian. We see that famous disciple forsaking his master and acting like a coward, running away when he ought to have stood by his side, ashamed to own him when he ought to have confessed him, and finally denying three times that he knew him. And this takes place immediately after receiving the Lord's Supper. After hearing the most touching address and prayer that mortal ear ever heard, after the plainest possible warnings, this fall of Peter is doubtless intended to be a lesson to the whole church of Christ. It is a beacon mercifully set up in Scripture to prevent others making shipwreck. It shows us the danger of pride and self-confidence. If Peter had not been so sure that although all denied Christ, he never would, he would probably have never fallen. It shows us the danger of laziness. If Peter had watched and prayed when our Lord advised him to do so, he would have found grace to help him in the time of need. It shows us not least the painful influence of the fear of man you are aware, perhaps, how much more they fear the face of man whom they can see than the eye of God whom they cannot see. That's true for us. These things are written for our admonition. Let us remember Peter and be wise. The magnitude of Peter's sin cannot be overemphasized. He has denied his Lord. And that is where this drama ends, right here. Peter leaves, stage left. Jesus is then transferred to Pilate's praetorium. And at this point, here's the question that we should be asking. Here's the question. Has Peter gone too far? He's denied his Lord three times. Has he gone too far? Has he gone the way of Judas, the son of eternal damnation? Is there any hope for Peter? Is there any forgiveness for this fallen apostle? One commentator asks it this way. We all sin, but whose sin can be compared to Peter's? The Lord Jesus himself 
The most important person to ever live was on trial. And by the way, Christ is just above Peter. Christ can see Peter. He's on trial and Peter, one of his closest disciples, denied him three times when he was at his most lonely and vulnerable moment. You cannot overemphasize this sin. Can Peter be forgiven? Can Peter be restored? Now the answer is yes. When Christ died on the cross, it was for every sin his people will commit. There's not one sin a believer can do, not one sin, not even denying Christ like Peter did that cannot be forgiven. But we see this promise of forgiveness. We see a clue for this in the passage. And I skipped over the detail in verse 18. So let's go back. Verse 18. Notice where Peter was when he denied Christ. Verse 18 tells us he was in front of a charcoal fire. Now the slaves and the officers were standing in the courtyard having made a charcoal fire. Why this detail? Why this detail? Why not just simply say there was a fire? What is so significant about recording the kind of fire that was lit on this night? It's by design. The answer comes at the end of John's gospel. Turn to chapter 21. Chapter 21, this is after Christ's resurrection. This is right before Jesus restores Peter back to the fold. You know the scene. Look at verse 15. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter says he does. Three times Jesus says, then take care of my sheep. Three times he's restoring Peter. He's forgiving Peter. Three questions of commitment that parallel Peter's three denials. And yet notice the setting for Peter's restoration and forgiveness. Notice the setting. Look at verse nine. When they got out on the land, they saw a what kind of fire? A charcoal fire. What has Jesus done? This is by design. What has Jesus done? He has recreated the setting of Peter's failure. Down to the very detail of the fire. Why? In order to emphasize the fullness of Peter's restoration and forgiveness. We can apply this to ourselves. You might be here and have failed your Lord and perhaps failed him in a very significant way. Well, rest assured, if you come to Christ in confession and repentance, he is willing to forgive you fully. And he is willing to restore you back to himself. Why? How? Because he is the innocent one. He's the innocent one who in love took upon himself every sin committed by all who would come to him in saving faith. The innocent one who in mercy endured his father's righteous wrath against the sin of his people. The innocent one who in faithfulness then credits his perfection to our account, 
so that when the father sees us, he actually sees the righteousness of his son. This is the glory of Christ's gospel. Full forgiveness of sin, full restoration to God, only though to the perfect and final sacrifice of Christ. Father, we offer you praise for your grace and your mercy and your love, for your forgiveness that you have promised to all who come to you in saving faith. Christ, we praise you for your faithfulness. You endured to the very end. You're obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedient to the point of death. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you have opened up our eyes to see our need for that forgiveness. You have given us faith to turn to the unblemished lamb who covers us as life, death, and resurrection. Humble us, Father, under the gospel. Raise us in praise for salvation is from you and through you and to you. We give thanks to you in Christ's name, amen.